Today's sermon comes from Isaiah 6, 8 through 13. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and whom will go for us? And then I said, here I am, send me. And he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant, the houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Well, what a text, right? Uh, in the life of preaching and in the life of pastors and sharing God's word, there come sermons where uh, you wish that you were able to teach this uh, in your living room. Uh, it's very hard in these situations with such a heavy text to be able to uh, preach and communicate in this way that doesn't allow feedback. I know a text like this is hard. It's hard to hear. This is just a short disclaimer. I don't do this before every sermon, but there are certain texts that uh, hit us like a sledgehammer. It's like trying to kill a fly with a sledgehammer. It comes on heavy. So uh, as we read and, and process this sermon, if you have any questions, concerns, thoughts, please come see me after the service. I know this is not an enjoyable thing to read about, but there's hope in this text. And what we'll notice in my sermon, the majority of my text is gonna be heavy, but there's hope here. Uh, if you do have any questions, uh, frustrations, gripes, uh, I'd love to hear them. Please come see me after the service. We'll find a time to talk. But before I dive in, I'm gonna pay, pray for us just one more time. Father, uh, this is a heavy text. Your word is a lamp and a light into us, but sometimes, Lord, seeing the light for the first time or uh, being surrounded by darkness and seeing such bright light is oftentimes painful. Uh, may I speak in a way that honors you, that honors your word, in a way that uh, encourages our church to uh, be a more loving uh, and uh, kind and generous and firm people. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So for some of you, take yourself back to 1980. You can probably figure out where you were in 1980. Uh, I was not born yet. Um, however, uh, some of you can remember seeing the images of bright red skies and ash-filled clouds throughout the TV and media. And what was happening in 1980 was the eruption of Mount St. Helens. This eruption took place. It was devastating. It sounded like a nuclear bomb reporter said that could be heard for over 600 miles. Over 50 people were killed. Millions of dollars of damage occurred. This was a devastating event that took place in the life of our nation. It's a very memorable time, but something very interesting happened. Those closest to the eruption, meaning right at the base of Mount St. Helens, they didn't hear the eruption. They didn't hear it, but people 600 miles away heard it. What in the world was happening? Scientists explain this phenomenon. It's called the zone of silence. 
the zone of silence. Mount St. Helens erupted with so much force that the sound waves traveled into the atmosphere, bounced off the atmosphere, and for people uh, miles and miles away, they were able to hear the concussive noise and the blast, but people right next to the source of the mountain, to the eruption, they were in the zone of silence. They didn't hear a thing. The only way they found out that uh, the mountain had erupted was either turning and seeing it or uh, first responders coming to them. This is an important uh, and interesting phenomenon that took place in our nation's history, but this is very symbolic of Isaiah's ministry here in our text. Isaiah was commissioned by God to share God's beautiful, life-giving, life-saving word and the people that were around Isaiah in his day, his generation, lived in this zone of silence. They didn't hear God's words coming through Isaiah. They were not able to hear. They were not able to listen to God's word. But interestingly, generations later, Isaiah's word was very powerful. Even today, Isaiah's word is very, very powerful. What this does for us sitting on this side of human history is it challenges our natural assumptions to how we believe God's word works. How in the world does God's word work? It naturally makes us ask that question. And our text is going to show us two ways in which God's word works. It hardens some and it softens some. It hardens some people and it softens others. Two points, simple points, but they're not easy, okay? So let's see how God's word hardens some. Let's look at verses nine and 10 and just know we're gonna be in point one for a while. So after we get exhausted after point one and then I go into point two, don't think there's another 35 minutes. We're right there at the end, but just buckle up for this first point. Let's look at verses nine and 10. Go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. In the Hebrew, God is saying, don't understand. Sounds a little nicer in English. In the Hebrew, it's don't understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. So last week, we saw this beautiful commissioning of Isaiah. We saw Isaiah uh, standing before the throne. He encountered God's holiness and God sees him and he could have consumed him, but God in his mercy touched his tongue, symbolically healed him from the altar of atonement. Isaiah was healed. And then out of this healing, we see in verse eight, God say rhetorically, now that I've healed you, who am I gonna send to go out for us? And this was some Trinitarian language, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God saying, who am I gonna send out now? Hmm? Who's gonna raise their hand? Isaiah was there. And after receiving this forgiveness and mercy, like a kid who's ready to go to a bounce house, they're like, here I am, let's go, let's go, send me. He's very excited to be sent out. This excitement, unfortunately, was met with a very brutal and painful calling. Why? 
It's at this point, most sermon series stop and skip right to chapter seven and start talking about history. Verses eight through 13 are typically skipped over because they're really challenging to hear. Why in the world did Isaiah receive such a a difficult calling? Isaiah's generation had experienced a season of blessing. They have experienced a season of prosperity and growth and grace. And what happened in the middle of this blessing, they stopped listening to God's words. They stopped following God. They became cold to God's word. They were performing religious duties. They were doing the right things, but their hearts were far from God. They looked more like the world than they uh, should have. They lost their ability to have influence with the culture around them. And what was the result? Verses nine and 10. Verses nine and 10 tell us that God's people uh, would not hear his message. Verses nine and 10, I'll summarize it and say, God's beautiful mercy is going to go out and they will be completely hardened to it. They won't listen. They'll be blind and deaf and dumb to God's word. Their hearts will be hard. Let's be real, that's scary. It's okay to let that jar us. That is super uncomfortable. You mean to tell me that God's love is going to go out and there's a chance that I'm just going to be blind and deaf to it? That's scary. Surely this is an isolated event in the Old Testament. Surely just eight through 13 is this one thing for this people in history and we can explain this thing away. I wish that was the case. Verses nine and 10 are some of the most quoted texts in the New Testament. These two verses are quoted by Jesus in all four gospels. These verses were quoted by Paul in Acts as they were sharing about God's love and grace through the person and work of Jesus is going to go out and some people, a lot of people are, are going to reject it. What's the point? The point of these verses in Jesus's words and Paul's teaching is that God's word is always going to go forward. God's word is going to do its job. And as it's working and moving forward, some people are gonna listen to it and some people are going to reject it. That's what it's teaching, yes, but why? Why? I ask that same question. The issue is we forget how radical sin is. A lot of times we hear sin discussed and it just makes you do or think or say bad things. Sin is so corrupting, it affects our ability to see what good is. It's not that we just don't do the right thing and do wrong things. We don't interpret data correctly. We don't see sunrises and sunsets and see them to the glory of God. We don't see facts in front of our faces and see that God is trying to communicate to us. Sin blinds us. It keeps us from perceiving truth. If you study theology, you'll see that that's called the noetic effects of sin, mind, notitia, mind. It affects our mind's ability to process and enjoy data. So how damaging is sin? 
How damaging is it? I'm just gonna take a short couple of verses from the corpus of the actual Bible and see from Old Testament, Psalm, New Testament, let's just read about how destructive sin is. Look at Genesis 6, 5. It says, the wickedness of man was great on earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Whew. Psalm 14, 1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. If y'all find a pastor who enjoys preaching about this and you see him get excited, run. This is not enjoyable. Psalm 14, 1. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. I included that last because God in his providence will sometimes take his hands of grace off and just leave us to ourselves. And that's a dangerous place to be at. What does this help? How does this help us interpret verses nine and 10? How do these heavy texts about sin help us learn more about verses nine and 10? There's no neutral ground with God. There's no neutrality there. You're either hardened towards God's word or by a miracle, God's word softens you. There's no neutrality. It's hardened or softened. There's no middle ground. We see examples of this all throughout the Bible, but one in particular stands out. Take your minds back to our Exodus series and how God was interacting with Pharaoh there. Pharaoh was God's enemy. His primary sin was he didn't acknowledge God. He didn't know God. His pride was so big that he thought the world revolved around him enough to actually believe that he was a God descended from Ra, their, uh, their Mesopotamian God. This is bananas. This guy really thought this. That's how nasty sin is. And here God's response, Exodus 9, verse 12. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. So quickly back to that, to harden in this context is that Romans 1 passage. God just took the hands of grace and restraint off of Pharaoh. He said, I'm done trying to break through. I'm gonna dust my hands and dust my feet off and I'm gonna leave Pharaoh to himself. This is exactly what's happening with Judah in our text this morning. Just like with Pharaoh, God is saying to Isaiah's generation, I'm going to give you exactly what you want when you want it. And that is tragic. That's not tragic. If you're trekking with me and you're here, you're like, but that's not fair, God. You are supposed to be the loving one. You are supposed to love people, right? Well, yes, but don't forget God's primary attribute is holiness. His first attribute that we saw in Isaiah 6 is holy, holy, holy. But it's natural to question the fairness of this. Did God give them a time, a chance to repent? Did God give Pharaoh sign after sign and time after time to say, you don't have to break my back any longer, God, I'm listening. 
I will let your people go. I'll do it. He gave him plenty of chances. Even after the Passover and the firstborn was killed, Pharaoh still pursued God's people and his armies were destroyed. The same thing with Judah. He's given them time after time after time. Repent, come to me, turn to me. I'm here for you. Listen to me, listen to me, come to me. Judah didn't listen. And their end was ruin. Isaiah was so shocked by this. Isaiah was so shocked by this, his only response was how long? Not, are you gonna stop? But in verse 11, he just says, how long? And in 11 through 13, God describes almost total annihilation. Almost total and complete annihilation until a tenth remained. And did this happen? Did this prophetic word come true? Sadly, yes. Judah fell in 586 BC through onslaught and raids of the Babylonian and Assyrian armies. It was horrible. God's people were exiled. But even during all this exile, there was always this little remnant of people. What in the world do we learn from this? What do we learn from this, y'all? Listen to A.W. Tozer. Religious instruction, however sound, is not enough by itself. It brings light, but it cannot impart sight. The assumption that light and sight are synonymous has brought spiritual tragedy to millions. The Pharisees looked straight at the light of the world for three years, but not one ray of light reached their inner beings. Light is not enough. The inward operation of the Holy Spirit is necessary to saving faith. The gospel is light, but only the Spirit can give sight. Church, this is 10 fingers pointing at me, just sharing with y'all what God's been doing in my life through this text. And hopefully we can all eat off of the same plate. And what we need to realize is that God's word is living and it is absolutely untamable. It is living and untamable. Hear what the writer of Hebrews said about it from chapter four, verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, not was living, is living, it is active, sharper than any two-edged sword, it's dangerous. It pierces to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, in discerning the thoughts of intentions of our hearts. This means for us that every time God's word is open, every time you're driving down the street and you see a billboard, every time you see a bumper sticker, Every time God's word is heard, read, perceived, it is wrecking you, whether you realize it or not. It's either wrecking you into repentance, breaking you down, and helping you see your need of a savior, or it's going to wreck you into this shell of a human that's hard and impenetrable and cold and distant to God. When you hear God's word, you're either going to hear the voice of a stranger or the voice of your savior. 
When you read or hear God's word, you're either going to hear the voice of condemnation or the voice of salvation. There is no middle ground. And just like every single biblical text that we read, how does this apply to 2022? How does this apply to us today? Very practically. It begs this question. Where has comfort and blessing eroded our ability to be an influence in the culture? Where has our comfort and where has our blessing made us potentially spineless, scared, angry, violent, a host of other things? Think about this. We live in a cultural climate today where if you just maintain a Christian worldview, I'm not even saying you're out publicly sharing it. If you maintain a Christian worldview, you could very easily get canceled, meaning lose your job, friends, relationships, income, uh, the whole nine. You could get canceled faster than Urban Meyer leaving Jacksonville. Canceled, fast. Faster than my 10.30 a.m. protein bar in Topo Chico. It goes fast. I'm not even going to argue for these things. I'm just going to list them off and I guarantee there's someone here who's just gonna hear me say Christian worldview things in love and I wish we could do this in my home. Uh, I don't have a coffee table, but just in my home where we could talk and do these things. I'm just gonna rattle them off and somebody in here is gonna get to the point. If he says one more thing, I'm out of here. It's real. Listen to this. Maintain a Christian worldview that there are two genders, male and female, determined by God at birth that cannot be changed for anything. Just maintain that. Don't even argue for it, just, just maintain that. Maintain that marriage is between one man and one woman. Maintain that God created the world by his very word, not through the process of macroevolution. Maintain that position. First Thessalonians 5 tells us to test the spirits, to question everything. Call to question your manager's motives and actions. Call to question elected officials' motives and actions. Call to question who's governing the governors, right? Not to say that everyone is bad, but who is governing the governors? When you hold people accountable to what they say they're going to do, and this happens locally in, uh, with your boss. It happens in, with school boards. It happens with elected officials. It happens in every aspect where someone's in power. The Bible says that we are humans. We are flawed. You give us a little bit of power. 
You give us a little bit of influence and without God's hand in our lives, we are prone to making mistakes. Just call to question that in a public forum with people you work with. You could even be called an extremist today. I didn't even like argue any of these positions. I'm just laying them out there, right? And I feel the weight of this. Now, there's two ditches here. There's two sinful ditches to what you do with a Christian worldview. One is to uh, get on a high horse and to lead from the defensive or the offensive of everyone who's not a Christian is stupid. And it's my job to troll them and to pick a fight with them, right? The other side of it is to say, this is so crazy, I'm just going to sit back and I'm gonna have joy of missing out and I'm gonna sit back and chill and I'm not getting into any of that mess, right? There's two ditches here. One is trolling and fighting. Another one is just complete apathy, fear. I'm not getting involved. This isn't the right time. This isn't the right avenue. Where's the middle ground? The middle ground is from Jesus in Matthew 5. Notice verses 13 through 16. He says, you are the salt of the earth. Salt is a preserver, right? There wasn't refrigeration back then. You either had to bury your food and uh, your groceries, so to speak, or you had to cover them in salt to keep them from rotting, all right? We are Christians who trust Jesus, who have the Holy Spirit with them. We are salt. He's assuming this, okay? But if salt loses its savor, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything. So we are good for something, right? We're good for something. If we're not good for anything then, except to be thrown out and trampled by men. Next, you are the light of the world. You are the light. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. So we are called to not hide what we believe and why we believe it. Instead, set it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. This is assuming that we live around chaos. It's assuming that where we live is dark and we are called to just do what God called us to be. Just be you. Let the Holy Spirit work through you wherever you are. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So let's take this middle ground that Jesus gives us and see how it works. For those of you who do follow Jesus, you will think, act, talk, vote, work. You will do things differently. You just will. You will interpret data differently. You will see the world from a different lens. And what's gonna happen is if you're living in a Christian worldview, meaning you're operating your life through that belief system, what's happened is that you're gonna encounter people and people are gonna be like, hmm, something's different about them. I don't know what it is. 
I don't know. When I was a kid being raised in the church and I knew real Christians, I was like, man, why are they happy all the time? There ain't that much to be happy about. Like, people will notice that there's something different about you. And humans are curious by nature. We want to figure out what's going on. And people, as you develop relationships, will be like, why in the world did you do that? Why in the world are things happening and you're not flying off the rails? Why is your marriage different? Why are all these questions, sometimes from curious, sometimes out of anger, and it's in those moments where you've got the ripe opportunity to share what you believe and why you believe it. Now that's much different than sitting in a position that we just troll people and say, you're wrong because of blank. This type of Matthew 5, 16 assumes that we know what we know. We know why we believe it. We're firm and rooted in it. This also dictates that you want to engage that like Isaiah, you want to get out of yourself and use your position of influence. Use the friend group that you're in to share life with them. This also means that if you see injustice happening, if you see people being taken advantage of, you step firm in your faith, trusting the Holy Spirit in those moments. You don't sit idly by and just let evil happen. You trust that the Holy Spirit in those moments will speak through you. How do we do that effectively? Like I said, we must know what we believe and why we believe it. And we need to know what other people believe as well. Not to become an expert at everything under the sun, but you need to be in an offensive measure, very sure about what you believe. Because what happens when you're very sure of what you believe when you interact with somebody who doesn't believe that, you're going to stay calm and level-headed and loving. It doesn't mean that you're not gonna get caught with a, actually, I don't know. It doesn't mean you're gonna be caught like, actually, I was wrong there. It doesn't mean that's not going to happen. But if you're so rooted in Jesus, it's okay to be wrong and make a mistake because he is the ultimate source of truth. We should be encouraged to be lifelong learners. We've got to positively engage in our culture. We have got to, with curious boldness, engage where we are. And that requires us to not take the edge off of what we believe. I'm trying to model that here. This is a difficult text to read. I'm not trying to diminish God's word to y'all. We're just, the, I'm the messenger conveying truth. I've got to let the Holy Spirit do his job with his word. I'm not here to soften it. That's not my job. But additionally, we can't be so scared of losing our comfort in relationships with others that we can't lovingly engage. We can't bury our head in the sand. This means we need to have a positive understanding of why God works through creation and not macroevolution. I've got so many examples of these things. Uh, porcupines are born with soft quills that don't harden until days later. Why is that? Because if a mother porcupine gave birth to a hardened porcupine, it would kill the mother. Therefore, we would have no more porcupines. There's no trial and error in nature. 
right? There's no long-term, okay, well, that first porcupine died. Uh, Where's the other one, right? We need to understand when we see injustice happen, there are times when we stand up. The Greensboro Four, from my hometown, saw the injustice of segregation. And what did they do? They just sat at Woolworth's counter and it changed the world. They didn't violently demonstrate. They sat at that counter, they were abused, but they put a microphone in front of their mouths after time and they were able to share why injustice is wrong, why segregation is evil, and it changed the face of our nation. God called them and calls us to be bold in the face of injustice. So what's the challenge then? We see why things are happening. We see how to do it effectively. God's mandate, what's the challenge? Wake up. And I mean that in a loving way. Let's not be lulled into so much blessing that we forget that God has put a mission on our lives. And it's to share the truth of God with everyone we come in contact with. Not in a Bible-thumping, Bible-bashing way, but when our words and our actions meet together with people, they are going to experience the fragrance of God. And we did our community Bible reading this week. And for some, it's gonna smell like life. And for some, it's gonna smell like death. We can't control it, but we are called to live our lives as salt and light because this world needs Jesus. We need Jesus. I need Jesus. We're just beggars telling other beggars where we found bread. And we're called to do that with truth and love. The good news is we can engage with bold curiosity in our world because God's word is undefeated. It is undefeated. It is the foundation for which everything exists. People have been trying to disprove the Bible for thousands of years. And where's the church today, y'all? We're here. We're worshiping. This ain't our building, but we are that temple. God is with us. His spirit is with us. And the gates of hell will not prevail against us. So this is your call to love and to be bold, to be firm in what you believe and why you believe it. You're not guaranteed success, but God is guaranteed that some people will listen. God is guaranteed that some people will love you for this. And because that work is guaranteed, we can go and work with hope. All right, I told you, heavy on the first point. Now, we've asked, how in the world does God's word work? It hardens some. We're at the end, y'all. Good news is here. God's word hardens some, it softens some. Look at verse 13. And though a tenth remain in it, thought you said this was good news. It's gonna be burned again. Uh-oh. Like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it's felled. The holy seed is its stump. Just like this text in the majority of our time this morning, it's been heavy and sobering. But in the midst of all of this sin, one truth remains. Sinners cannot defeat salvation. God will always save some 
people. There will always be a remnant of truth and love and light from God's people to the world. Nothing will extinguish this light. God saves some. Praise God. We don't know how it happens or when it happens, but he saves some. Now, the imagery here is of this leveled forest that was burned over, 90% of it as absolutely destroyed, and out of this one stump, this little shoot of life appears. Isaiah talks about this little stump in chapter 11. Look with me here. It says, There shall come from a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord. Now, Isaiah, speaking on behalf of God, is sharing some wonderful, deep biblical truth. Although the majority of people turn their backs on God during Isaiah's day, there was a small remnant that believed. Even when they were cast into exile, the small remnant believed. And out of this small remnant, Isaiah is saying that life is going to come from them. Out of this one little shoot, the earth is going to come to know the Lord. Some people will be saved amongst all the destruction. Praise God. Just like God prophesying the fall of Judah, God also prophesies from this stump, from this little shoot, the Messiah would come that he would bring heaven into earth, that he would radically change all things and die for God's people to be saved. He would die for sinners. Isaiah's talking in chapter 11 back to David. God told David that one of your offspring is gonna rule forever. I'm gonna make a dynasty through you. One of your offspring is going to live forever. Jesus knew he was that offspring he knew he was the one to save God's people and he proved it in Revelation 22. Look with me there. He says, I am the root and the descendant of David. Now he could have said Jesse, but he said David. Who was David's father? Jesse, fulfilling Isaiah 11, fulfilling out of this painful text that we have this morning, hope is going to come. That's how the Old Testament church was saved. They were always looking forward to this shoot that would come and save and bring God's knowledge and life to people. By God's grace, we're on this side of the cross and we get to look back and see how Jesus fulfilled all of these things. We get to look back and see that we are those sinners worthy of being leveled. But because we trust in Jesus and his life and his death on the cross and resurrecting to life, that we are the fruit of this beautiful plant springing forth from all this destruction. So to some, even here today, hearing that Jesus knows every single one of your sins, he knows everything in the pits of your heart. He knows all the ways in which you constantly struggle with belief and he loves you despite all that. He knew that would happen and he joyfully was nailed to the cross for you. Some people are gonna hear that and say, praise Jesus. Thank God, his grace is so amazing. I can't even begin to stomach it. Others are you, uh, 
others here are gonna be like, man, I wish Keith was here preaching. I wish somebody else was here to listen to this message. I can't wait to get out of here. He totally butchered that illustration, whatever the case may be. Some people will hear about God's grace. and It's not gonna affect them at all. I don't know where you are this morning, but please hear that if God is after you, that's a good thing. If you are being disciplined, he disciplines those whom he loves. If things aren't going according to your plan, that's a good thing. If life is challenging, if life is hard, if you are experiencing struggle, if you are experiencing the need to cling to the Bible for everything that you have, that's a good thing. If you're critical, if you're angry, if you're hardened, if you're apathetic, if this is just a giant placeholder to impress somebody so you can take them on a date, I was in your shoes for years. Grab grace while the getting's good. I can't get no more southern than that. Get it while it's good. Don't toy with God's grace. Don't toy with God's mercy. And here's the good news for those of you who believe in this. If you feel empowered to go love the unlovable, if you feel empowered to share your faith, if you feel empowered to get off the sideline, to stop looking at the line and to get involved in the game, you're going to fail at it. You're gonna be overbearing at times. You're gonna say something dumb at times. You're gonna say something that's probably heretical at times. But if you trust in Jesus, you're forgiven. I'm not saying go do those things, but when you fail, you're forgiven. It's been handled at the cross. That's why Jesus said it's finished. And for others of you, there's gonna be times where it's gonna be right there in front of your plate, right there for you to step up for what you believe and why you believe it. And you're gonna say, oh man, this ain't the time. And you're gonna cower. You're forgiven too. We are beggars telling other beggars where we found bread. We are imperfect. We are a work in progress. And even when you mess up and you go too strong, even going to those people and saying, forgive me, I messed up. That's a powerful witness. I don't have time to tell you about the time the abortionist knocked on my door Saturday morning when I was having coffee date with my wife. I did not respond like a Christian, but I went and apologized to him. There's been times where I've had a perfect opportunity to tell people about Jesus. And I'm like, I've got to get to this next meeting. I've been there. I've lived this. And we're forgiven. I pray that the same grace that saved you, that changed you, that's working in you, flows through you. And you know that you're a work in progress and that you're forgiven forever. For those of you who don't know Jesus yet, bring your questions, bring your curiosity. Don't write off everything in your life like it's just some great coincidence. There's no accident why you're here, why your life is unfolding the way it is. God's rattling your foundations until you 
rest and trust in him. And Jesus tells us when we trust in him, his burdens are easy and his love is great. Let's pray. Father, we are your people and to claim your name is a gift of your miraculous grace. We were all Pharaoh. We were all the generation living amongst Isaiah, having your word proclaimed in our own language, and we still chose to go other directions, but you didn't give up on us. Help us to not give up on the people around us. Help us to not give up on ourselves. Help us to not throw in the towel, but cling to you and trust you, knowing that you are the giver of all good things. Even if some of those good things are painful for a moment, you are changing our lives. Help us to trust you. Help us to bring others along with us. And we pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.